This is a post-Christian podcast. We are the Sacred Collective. All are respected. All are heard. All are welcomed. Join us. Well, welcome to the Sacred Collective. Uh, we just started recording. Um, so thanks for being a guest on our on our little podcast. Pleasure. Kind of what we do with a lot of our interviews is just kind of just so that our listeners can uh, kind of get a grasp of who you are, like what you've done in your past. I don't know, just give a little sketch, a little bio, however long or short you want it to be. Just who you are, what you do. I'm Torsten, Torsten Moritz. Uh, I'm German. That's why I sound funny. And uh, yeah, I grew up there and went to university there. I studied theology. Um, not entirely sure why I did that. <laughs> um, at the time, and just uh, the opportunity presented itself, and I, I thought this is interesting. I'm going to pursue it. Um, and then during that time, I realized that um, I should really broaden my thinking a bit. The school that I went to was a little bit on the narrow side. I thought, uh, of course, the first couple of years you don't really realize that, but then somewhere after you know third, fourth semester, you get it. And so I then decided to go to England uh, for more study and. I went to London, I did a master's, and uh, and I kind of discovered my uh, the intellectual side of me, if you will. So in England, I just kept going. Uh, I did my PhD there, and it became clear. Well, actually, two things became clear during that time. Uh, one, I wanted to teach. Mm-hmm. You know, when you have no experience and you're not really trained in anything else you become a teacher and if you're not good at that you become a professor that kind of thing you know (laughs) right (laughs) um yeah no i i hope my reasons were a little bit better than that but uh yeah i i did my research there i lived in london i did some of it in cambridge uh sort of back and forth my professor started in london um and during my phd time switched to cambridge so i sort of got the best of both worlds and then, uh, surprisingly, I uh, was offered a job as a professor um, in, well, over there, it'd be called a lecturer, kind of, you know, like an assistant professor here. And then you sort of make your way through the the ranks, if you will, mm-hmm. you know, as professor, you become associate professor, you become full professor. Uh, the words are a little different in England, but it's essentially the same concept. So I did that for quite a few years. And what I loved about it was that uh, this was a university, uh, just, just your your average university, basically, in the south of England. You know, there was nothing fundamentalist about it. There was nothing super outrageous about it. It was sort of perfect for me because I knew I had to move on from the narrowness of what I'd uh, experienced before. Hmm. Uh, but I needed to sort of move slowly, you know, take a few years. The other thing that I realized during my PhD was that um, getting a PhD, even if it's considered a good one, uh, your dissertation and how you defend it and so on, getting that doesn't really mean all that much in, in the sense of the skills you actually need either to teach or in real life. Right. And that made me realize that what I wanted to do is broaden from theology into hermeneutics. And by that, I don't mean, um, you know, five rules to interpret this kind of text and you know, um, seven rules uh, to attain exegetical heaven or anything like that. No, um, much broader than that. Basically, the question of how do humans interpret anything? How do we function as humans? 
And so I started being really interested in that. Now, in my PhD, I couldn't at- attend to that because uh, you have to be super focused on what you what you did. So I completed it. But ever since I completed it, I've been on this hermeneutical journey. And yes, I've done theology. I'm technically a New Testament professor. But ultimately, that's been my sort of playground for uh, being hermeneutical. And over the last few years, I broadened that into travel, into cultural travel, taking students abroad, um, and other stuff like that. So uh, eventually, I got a phone call from uh, someone in the United States, uh, Bethel University, to be precise. And even though they were clearly more conservative, uh, if you will, than than I was, it was an opportunity to broaden my horizons. And um, I guess I'm one of few people who's taught in mainstream academic uh, universities than in a, a university or seminary context on the more conservative end. And then at the other end of the spectrum, at the more liberal end, I was a professor there, too, from uh, 2014 to 2017 in the Twin Cities. And since 2017, uh, I've done a few other things, but basically I've, I've sort of run the gamut of theological education. Hmm. Fantastic. And our paths crossed originally at uh, Bethel Seminary. Um, I didn't have you for hermeneutics, but I did have you for, I think you taught a class on Acts and, was it Acts and Pauline letters or epistles? Right. Yes. Yeah. That was that was a good class. Very hard. Torsen's a very... <laughs> Not, I wouldn't say a, a tough, well, you're tough, but it was, I think I got a B or a C, and it was probably the toughest B or C that I <laughs> that I earned. For some reason, you're not the first one to tell me that. <laughs> no, it was good. Like, I don't I don't like taking seminary classes, and it's like, oh, good job, you got an A. It's like, really, that was kind of easy, but like, I, you know, seminary is supposed to be challenging, and your class was challenging in a lot of good ways, and it helped me see Paul and, you know, the epistles in a new, in a totally different light. Um, from where I was, kind of how I was taught. Um, yeah, so let's kind of talk about um, kind of like your passion project now is the warehouse theology, and I'm really interested in that too. Um, so kind of just give like a sketch of what warehouse theology is and kind of what you're doing with that and uh, you kind of like your vision with that. Okay. Um, I'll just... Uh very briefly, historically, about the time at Bethel, I, I should say something to, to contextualize this a little bit, to contextualize warehouse theology. Um, I think the rest of what I will say will make better sense in light of that. Uh, so remember, I told you that I, um, I've taught in all sorts of different uh, theological arenas, and hermeneutics has always been the thing that has kept me sort of anchored and and, and grounded and provocative at the same time. And, and then being a German, I, I got away with a lot of stuff. You know, people, <laughs> strong doctrinal or whatever convictions might say, oh, well, he's German. And I, I, I used that. <laughs> so, but I realized something during my time on this side of the pond, um, so in, in, in the U.S. and in, in the Twin Cities, um, I... I realized uh, in, in, in both environments, the conservative one and the liberal one, um, and I, I, I hate that we have to talk about them that way, but to a degree we still do, and in another sense I'm sort of way past that uh, duality, but I realized something about both kinds of institutions, and that is um, they are um, prone to certain fundamentalisms, uh, that are very akin to each other, even if they look differently theologically. They ask the same kinds of questions. They just give opposite answers. 
Um, they are obsessed with questions outside of the text, talking about, you mentioned the Acts Paul class, talking about the Bible. For instance, you know, they're, they're obsessed with historical questions, empirical questions, that A, do not help us a lot with interpreting the text, and B, we don't have a lot of answers to some of the most important questions in that area, and C, it keeps us from actually interpreting that which we claim is so important, which is the text. So that drove me crazy, it, and it drove me crazy in both kinds of environments. Uh, I actually felt freer in that mainline uh, university setting in the UK, and even even uh, in Germany, where I taught briefly at Leipzig University. Uh, we exchanged some professors for a while, which was a lot of fun. So I, I taught there in, in my own language, so that was good. Um, in those settings uh, over there, if you will, I actually felt a bit freer in, 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 in a way, because even though there were also fundamentalisms at work, they didn't impinge on my work so directly. And um, all that is by way of uh, contextualizing the warehouse theology thing. Uh, when I reached a point at Bethel where there was a change in leadership and the leadership decided that Bethel needed to become even more conservative, just when some of us were working hard to open the place up a bit, and, and we seemed to succeed. <laughs> there was a change in leadership, and, and all that got uh, pretty much, uh, you know, uh, pushed underwater. And uh, so my time, and, and not just mine, other people, too, who were hoping to open things up a bit um, at Bethel, we just, just moved on from there. And I knew immediately what I wanted to do. I wanted to start a an educational venture, a theological educational venture that um, initially wouldn't care, couldn't care less about things like accreditation, uh, which is becoming less important anyway. I can say more about what my my thoughts on that if if, if you're interested uh, later. But uh, um, I basically didn't want to worry about that. I wanted to worry about getting. And I'm not going to say the product because uh, theology and edu or education, those are not products, those are not commodities, uh, those are journeys. But I did not want um, um, the theology or theological education uh, to have to essentially dance to the same beat the whole time, uh, whether you're conservative or liberal or something else. We had to be able, surely, to take some stuff that has defined theological education, turn it upside down and see if it works better. And if it does, great, let's go with that. And if it doesn't, um, fine, but at least we've, we've tried. And my expectation was that with some things, you know, it would be one and with some things it would be the other. So that's what I did. I, I, um, I went to a warehouse and in uh, the warehouse district near the Twin Stadium in Minneapolis, I rented space. I rented it right in the middle. And now we're talking warehouse theology, uh, which was your question. So I uh, rented space in there um, in the middle of one of those old, sexy warehouses, you know, with these amazing freight elevators and the, the wooden floors all beat up and the and the huge beams and brick walls and metal and ah, oh, it's fantastic. And um, I rented that. I plunked my office right in there. And the space that I rented was way bigger than what you would need for an office. So my office was basically inside of the classroom. You, it was 
you, you could hardly differentiate between the two. But the more important thing is, not only was it the best office I ever had, because it was so different from this corporate-looking, boring, you know, uh, whatever footage, 10 by 12 foot office that you, you know, you get in academia. Um, it inspired me. It, it, it became kind of a symbol of something much bigger that I was trying to do there, which was uh, precisely to take elements, unquestioned elements of education and theological education, turn them upside down. I don't mean theology as such necessarily. That's another question. Um, also interesting, but the parameters in which the teaching happens, the way it happens, the way people are tested and and accredited and all that stuff, uh, teaching itself to take all of it, turn it upside down, and see if any of it works better that way. And I was absolutely amazed to find how much better a lot of things worked. I'll give you just one small example. This is a tiny example there are many uh, much bigger ones, but here's a small one just to illustrate uh, what I'm talking about here. Um, you know, in education, you are actually legally under an obligation to supply a syllabus to students. So we do that, and certain things need to be on there, and I get that. It kind of makes sense. The students uh, may look at this as a product, and they want to see what the product is and, and all the rest of it. However, when you think about it, pedagogically, this is... This is uh, the, the uh, epitome of, of, of insanity. You create a syllabus that implicitly assumes that all students will have the same learning outcomes. In fact, accreditation bodies are very insistent on that. And I'm sorry, that's nuts. <laughs> we are all very different human beings. How in the world can we, or frankly, should we, end up with the same learning outcomes. Right. Unless you define learning outcome in such a, a wide-ranging, general kind of way that everybody can say, yeah, yeah, right, right, we want to be better people at the end of this course, you know, or something like that. But then it becomes pretty useless. So um, I gave people syllabi, but I gave them two. I gave them one, actually many more than that. I gave them one at the beginning, which is basically me saying to the student, this is the kind of stuff I think we should start with. And uh, this is, this is uh, something we could do. And uh, then we will see how everyone develops in this class. You see, in those other schools, I wasn't free to do that. But once I was out of that system, I could do it. And uh, so I offered a few classes, um, and we did things very differently. So people effectively ended up with their own individual syllabi afterwards, that looked back at what they actually did, mm. how they were shaped, how they shaped each other, and all the rest of it. That seemed to me to make a lot more sense. That's just one example here. That's cool. So that was the beginning of warehouse theology. Sounds like a very organic approach to education and kind of letting the makeup of uh, the students and, and how, how they learn or, or uh, you know any other variable that might factor into the shaping of the class kind of a- allowing that the space and even maybe giving it a little bit of a a little bit of a, a boost a little bit of a push in the direction that it that it wants to naturally organically go um did did you notice yourself attracting any specific i guess maybe demographic or or uh in people with with common frustrations with classical approaches to education or what what sort of people i guess did you notice yourself first attracting 
That is exactly what happened. And what was so interesting about that was uh, when I started warehouse theology, and frankly, I wasn't even fully going yet, um, another school came along um, and said, hey, we heard about this, we heard about what happened at Bethel and the direction that school is taking, and, and now you're doing this, and we hear good things, and, and, and uh, we'd like uh, to meet with you. Uh, can you come? And I said, sure, I can come pretty much any time you want. And they said, well, how about later this afternoon? And I said, sure. And I went there, and they offered me a job. And the reason they offered me a job was because they suspected that hermeneutics has a capacity uh, to create exactly what you just talked about, which is to um, essentially pick people up, if you will, in the various positions where they, they are with the various stories that they, that they have mm-hmm. and that they have lived, and to pick up uh, where their frustrations leave them, but not just frustrations, but also, you know, that, that inherent desire to move beyond the frustrations. And hermeneutics can take people from there, can bring them together, and can bring them on a communal journey that is absolutely mind-blowing. Mm. And um, I uh, realized that hermeneutics has to be much wider than just how do you interpret, you know, apocalyptic text or that text or whatever. It has to be about how humans function. And you cannot have a special hermeneutics, you know, for for the Bible and another hermeneutic for the New York Times or whatever. That's that's nonsense. Humans function the way they function, and that may change over time. And hermeneutics has to go with it. But uh, you cannot just separate artificially. And that is an example that artificial separation of one of those frustrations that many students from different persuasions and backgrounds have had. And hermeneutics has given them this tremendous uh, lifeline of, of, of moving beyond that without having to become each other, you know, without having to become this, this uh, monolithic uh, thing that signs off as a group on uh, really general learning outcomes. So, so my experience was that students with frustrations, mm-hmm. um, but students who had the intellectual curiosity not to walk away from that, but to work through it, yeah. um, whatever their theological background, hermeneutics had the ability to bring them together. And, and in that sense, I saw almost no difference between my more conservative students, and at Bethel I had a variety of students, but included, they, they included some conservative ones, on the one hand, and uh, United uh, Theological uh, Seminary of the Twin Cities, on the other hand, where I worked for a few years, more liberal students, but they basically looked the same in hermeneutics. That was exciting. That's cool. Very cool. Um, you alluded to it, and I want to kind of swing back to it, of how um, accredited kind of the accreditation part didn't really, you know, jump out to you. Can you just explain, because, you know, when people think about higher education or just theological education, they always think about accreditation. Why did you kind of more pivot away from that, in your opinion? Yes, um, because not only uh, does it create huge cost, that's not even my main concern, though. That is a big concern, student loans and, and whatnot. And remember, this is a European sitting here 
who has to who needed time to wrap his mind around having to pay serious money for education. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, but that's not even the main concern. My main concern is that accreditation, and I know a lot about it. I, I was a dean. Uh, in two countries, and a, and a professor, I represented the British University when we became a university, um, vis-a-vis the government. I was the faculty rep. I know stuff about accreditation. And I have to say, accreditation does not deliver. Accreditation claims to have to maintain high standards of quality. Well, on one level, that is true. But what if those standards are largely irrelevant? Mm-hmm. I gave you an example already, the, the learning outcomes. Okay, so to be, if, if to be accredited means, for instance, that you, um, you know, all, all students have, have certain competencies um, after a certain uh, class, and therefore that class lift up to the uh, um, accreditation, uh, accreditationary expectation, then you're just you're just aiming way too low. <laughs> um, you know, we that that surely in higher education we have to do more for people than just to get them to some some sort of lowest common denominator. Uh, so that's again just one example, and I, I, I you know I could could give you dozens um, where accreditation just doesn't either, uh, well, it doesn't aspire to the kind of quality that it should aspire to, and it sure doesn't deliver on that. Well, if you don't aspire to it, you can't deliver on it anyway. So uh, my take on accreditation is not that the idea is fundamentally flawed. No, I think accreditation is a good thing, especially in a context like the U.S., where you pay these enormous uh, sums for education, and you have an expectation of quality, though you should have that in Europe and any other place too, of course. But um, the kind of accreditation that we need needs to be very different from what we actually have. What we actually have is this um, this kind of sterile and remote uh, um, notion of... Uh, of quality that bears little to no resemblance uh, to to reality. Um, it is it is um, something that you you can um, you can publish in statistics. Uh, it is it is something where you can put institutions in boxes. You can give them scores. Uh, you can you can you can claim at least you can claim it whether whether that makes sense is another matter you can claim to have objectively evaluated something well the trouble is we're human beings and we're subjective human beings and as much as objectivity as a as an aspiration has its valid place in our epistemology in how we are in our being we still are subjective beings, and and accreditation needs to be able to deal with that, and it does it does not it it cannot. So, if accreditation leads to a high cost, and at the same time cannot do what it sets out to deliver, and doesn't even have have aspirations that are up there, if you will, in a way that reflects being truly human then we need to change something quite radically. And my suggestion is is that the people who are the movers and shakers and the teachers 
in education. They need to be the ones who need to be accredited rather than the institution. Mm-hmm. Think about it. You look at a, at a, at a school and, and I could ask just about any person who's been to university or to a theological school. Uh, you go to that school, you spend a few years there, and, um, and you're going to have some teachers, some professors that are fantastic. And you're going to have some that are awful. <laughs> and you're going to have a lot in the middle. And maybe you even change your mind later and think such and such wasn't as bad as I thought, now that I know more, etc. I, I get that. I understand all that. But the reality is, accreditation does not save students from a, an unbelievable inconsistency in terms of the, I call it now, quote-unquote, product that is being delivered to them. So what's the point of accreditation? Should we not instead be in a position where we, um, we use teachers in line with their gifts? Should we not also be in a situation where we teach classes communally where different opinions and different levels uh, or different areas of expertise come together and they're being brought into a fruitful dialogue? Should we not be having uh, uh, contexts where students can, are, are invited to be uh, uh, essentially co-creative, to create content with the teacher? Yes, the teacher or the teachers are responsible ultimately, but to a degree the students are too, and why not co-create experiences? I, I recently figured out, or a few years ago, somebody asked me this question in, in, in some interview, and I later tried to figure it out. I may have had somewhere around 18 or 19,000 students over the years. Um, there have been amazing, amazing people among them. This is in different countries and, and so on. Amazing people. Why on earth would I not, quote, unquote, use them, you know, in the, in the positive sense, in the co-creative sense? Why wouldn't I let them come in into the act of education and, and facilitate mutual learning among the, cl- uh, the, the, the class. Well, accreditation, accreditation bodies have an awfully hard time accepting that. Mm. And so they basically don't. I, I just want to thank you for that because I feel uh, you're not the kind of status quo of people who have been in education or in education who think like that because you think of your typical seminary and the accreditation part and it's like you have to meet this you know this criteria this criteria this criteria but what you just said is of of being an educator yourself but taking the students that you have and being co-creators and to help create I think uh is fantastic and I think I don't I, I personally think that's where seminary is going maybe speak to this too um because I've, we've both been in both of those seminaries that you've talked about. Uh, obviously, I've been there just as students, uh, as a student. But I feel like across the board, whether you go to a conservative seminary or more mainline liberal, do you think that um, seminary is hurting? Do you think it's in crisis? Um, kind of any of those things? Because I, in my gut and in my heart, I feel regardless of you know, liberal, conservative, using those kind of outdated terms in, in a lot of ways, I feel like they're hurting. Um, they're kind of hemorrhaging financially 
not as many students want to go. Um, I don't know. What's your take on that? I agree with you. Uh, I'm just producing a little video. I started putting a, some very short uh, videos on, on, on social media about warehouse theology, kind of in preparation for for the launch, which is very imminent. And um, the one I, I was thinking about today, and I was doing a little voiceover for that, and now I put the, the visuals together for it, um, actually talks about that. Uh, this is very short. We're talking two and a half minutes, right? Um, the, uh, the, the point in that, that I'm making in, 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 that, uh, in that video is that seminaries uh, put themselves in an awful predicament, and yes, they are in trouble to answer your question, and, and for, for other reasons too, not just the one you mentioned. The predicament they put themselves into uh, it's, it's, it's very complex, uh, but one part of it is that um, it is they, they operate an educational model whereby people basically are asked to withdraw from whatever they're doing in life. And uh, in the old days, you know, you would move to seminary and, and essentially uh, live there, mm-hmm. except that nobody else lives like that. It's not real life. It's it's not like you're embedded in real life. <laughs> you're, it's more like you're you're uh, being, uh, uh, you know, you, you, you have a place uh, to sleep at night kind of a thing. Um, but it has nothing to do with real life. But now, now we don't do that so much anymore. Now it's more online and, and, and people move around and, and so on. However, basically, there's still this campus idea, something that I often uh, facetiously call compound <laughs> the compound mentality. I think the pairs are largely compounds, and that uh, I don't know. That feels odd when when you think about what's supposed to be taught, namely engagement with real people in real life. You know, the world. That's part of the predicament. Uh, the other part of the another part of it is that seminaries. So they withdraw these people. They suck them out of their context. They put them in in classrooms. Uh, really artificial settings uh, away from the context where these people either come from or will be working or both. Um, and then they, uh, they um, infuse them with theory for a few years. And there's a little bit of practice too. And I'm grateful for the people who look after, you know, all the practicums and, and, and whatnot. Um, and then the seminary essentially spits them out at the end. Um, you know, there's that scene on the commencement stage where you shake hands and you get your piece of paper and, and the, the director, principal, president, whatever, wishes you well. And that's it. Now you're out there. Now you're on your own, mate. And, uh, and you end up in a, in a church and that may or may not go well. And five years. According to the research, is a couple of years old now, but but um, um, the 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 research on um, how long seminary students stay in in their in the theological position that they trained for and that they uh, ended up in after seminary, the research suggests that on average these days people stay about five years and then they are done. Mm-hmm. They are frustrated, they are burned out, um, and they they move on and do something quite different. The, well, now the seminary is in another predicament, because it doesn't typically offer professional development for these people in their job settings. Um, they are on their own, and the other 
part of this is that the 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 stuff that the seminary has taught, and I've done it for many years, I, I know it inside out. The stuff that the seminary has taught, whether more conservatively or more liturgically or more liberally or more with a social uh, edge attached to it or, or whatever it may be, um, the stuff that the seminary has taught doesn't transfer easily into other domains. So when these people, when their five years are up, I mean, it's not like the clock strikes, you know, midnight and then people move on. But on average, five years, when they move on to something else, they sometimes have a really hard time looking back and saying, okay, so most of the stuff that I learned at seminary was so specific, it doesn't transfer. Where are the transferable skills here? Mm -hmm. So I would argue that we urgently need to think about what makes good professional education, period, or, or question mark, rather than to immediately dive into theological matters. If we, if we get um, better, significantly better at this thing called hermeneutics, in other words, how we interpret stuff, any stuff, and, and stuff including people too, uh, if, we, if we do that, if we get better at that, we'll be better everything. We'll be better theologians. Um, we will understand each other more, especially where we disagree, and we'll be okay with that. Uh, will be better equipped also for other engagements in this world. So seminaries seem amazingly ill-equipped uh, to to address those things. And so I would say, yes, they are basically in trouble. How long have you been uh, operating Warehouse Theology now? So what happened was I started Warehouse Theology, or I prepared for launching it in 2014, which is after Bethel. Uh, and then uh, United came along, and they hired me on the spot. There was not even an, a real interview or anything. They were just so excited what they heard, and and we met, and and uh, they hired me on the spot, and I was there on a on a three year contract. So what that meant in answer to your question is, I put Warehouse Theology on hold. I hadn't launched it yet. I put it on hold, and I said to United, I will do this for you. Um, and we will do this three-year uh, contract. I will envision it. I will design it. I will build it. Um, I will, you know, help staff it, run it, make sure we get accreditation, all that kind of stuff. I will do that, but I will. I don't want it to be called warehouse theology. The reason I did that is simple. I, I wanted to keep that 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 name for myself because I started in a warehouse. It was a warehouse where I was in the middle of other startups. We shared space. We had breakfast together or lunch together. We hung out together. Um, people who had all sorts of interests in religious matters, no interest in religious matters, you know, photographers, this, that, and the other thing, uh, producers, you name it. Um, I started in that warehouse. I did not want to take that term warehouse theology and use it for this three-year thing that I did for United. So instead, we called it Twin Cities School of Theology. School of Theology being a, an accepted term that is not seminary. Because <laughs> um, for some people, understandably, seminary sounds really antiquated and, and, and whatnot. Um, so, so the Twin Cities School of Theology in the 
in the sort of the world of theological education, that sounds really respectable, respectable, and and we had to uh, go with with a, a term that that could bear that weight. So so we did. So warehouse theology then was on hold after the three years were up at United. There was a uh, a leadership change. Uh, I don't know what happened. Well, I do know, but I. We don't need to go there <laughs> in the background between their board and their leadership, all sorts of stuff happened and um um you know, and that never stops when once that kind of stuff is is is, is sort of on the way uh long story short, there was a sort of vision a, a leadership change, a vision change, and uh instead of really going with it and and we had some serious acclaim there for the Twin City School of Theology. We had other schools contacting us uh wanting to uh wanting us out there to speak, so we spoke and 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 you know uh there was some serious acclaim, but the people who had the initial vision for it uh after we talked after they hired me, and I sort of won them over, they were now no longer there leadership change, and now it's back to uh, whatever they had before. So that was the time for me to revisit the idea of warehouse theology. In the meantime, I didn't have that space anymore, of course, because I had handed that more or less over to United, and when they had all the stuff that was going on and is going on there, um, they let go of that space, and that's, that's fine. I needed, I needed a fresh start. And the fresh start was going to be warehouse theology again. So in the last couple of years, I've been on and off working on this, preparing for this, but I've also done some different things. Uh, I love to travel. Uh, I've taken plenty of people to Cuba uh, because Cuba is a place that will mess with your mind intensely. If you're, a, let's say, a European or, or a, an American or Canadian um, and for me, as somebody wants to, who wants to do intercultural stuff and hermeneutical stuff, that's great. So one of the many countries I've taken students to has been Cuba. So the last few years, I've on and off worked on warehouse theology, as well as taken people to Cuba. Um, I have uh, created an on-ramp into college for former prison inmates, so they have somewhere to go other than construction. You know, I... I uh, I've done a bunch of things that are kind of socially much more directly involved in, in, in this world. Um, but more lately, I've uh, focused my effort on uh, getting warehouse theology off the ground. And uh, so I'm, I'm very close to it now. And, um, and I'm in the process. I'm, I'm in pre-launch mode, basically. Okay. So ever, ever since you left Bethel and... Uh, you know, decided that you, you you talked at the very beginning of this conversation about having uh, an idea for a new approach to ed- education and accreditation. And then, you know, if something you, you try something out, and if it holds water, then you, you keep it. And if it doesn't, then you can throw it out and kind of move on. Well, are there any spe- specific examples of things that you had ideas that you had or, you know, radical new ways to approach these things that did work or didn't work, or how is your the mechanics of actually putting this into application? Is there anything that you've that you've seen work and not work and had to change or adjust? Yeah, um, so I'm certainly moving away from the idea that uh, a school 
or warehouse theology in this case, has to have a particular theological identity. Mm-hmm. I'm not super interested in that. I don't want to make people sign up for anything. You know, you've got to be liberal, you've got to be conservative, you've got to be blah, you've got to be vanilla or whatever, or radical and edgy, and, and you've got to, I don't know, dye your hair orange. I, I want to stay away from all that, and I want to make uh, interpretation uh, the, key, the key piece and interpreting anything, because when you think about it, and this is something that answers your question uh, in terms of looking at something upside down, when you think about it, hermeneutics shouldn't be about justifying your theological or other um, preconceptions intellectually. Hermeneutics should start with the fact that as human beings, there is one thing we can never escape, and that is the fact that we are always interpretively active, twenty-four seven, three sixty-five, and yes, at night too. We cannot escape it. We are that is that is an essential part and quintessential part of what it means to be human. And it seems to me we should start with that, not with this or that theology. So make hermeneutics um, or interpretation or whatever you want to call it, but not in the narrow sense, but in the wider sense, in the, I guess the technical term would be epistemology is kind of a term a little bit like philosophy, in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to start with what it means to be quintessentially human, and and then we go from there. That That would be one example. And now we can bring all sorts of different disciplines you know, all the ologies, the anthropologies, the sociologies, um, and, and other disciplines to linguistics, history, um, theology, uh, neuroscience, we can bring them all together. And interpretation is essentially, it's like that, um, that, that hub in the middle of the wheel where the spokes come together. And, um, that is a clear departure from, you know, how it's, how it's often done. So we need to be, and this is the next thing that follows from that, we need to be interdisciplinary. And now it's obvious that we need to be co-creative. How can we be interdisciplinary and get different fields of knowledge talking to each other unless we are Mm co-creative? None of us, you know, knows a lot about everything. Um, So so the pedagogy of co-creativity instead of uh, one-way traffic teaching which seminaries still do mostly, and churches, of course, are the you know the kings and queens of that. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't cut it. That doesn't cut it. We need co-creativity. We need interdisciplinarity. Hermeneutics is, seems to be the way to do it. Um, I'll give you other examples in no, in no particular order here. Instead of having a compound, aka campus, and making people come even if it's a sort of drive-by situation with a big parking lot and you just hop out of your car and you take a lecture and you disappear again, that kind of uh, situation um, should in some ways be turned upside down. Um, why, why not offer theology in a way that, uh, that comes to the people? I mean, today we can do it technologically like we are doing right now, uh, but also why not in person? Um, I will probably start a venue for uh, for warehouse theology in Pittsburgh, PA, shortly. And I hadn't foreseen that. 
but the opportunity presented itself. And you know what? It will probably be connected to two Airbnbs, one on either side. <laughs> and it's going to be basically a seminar room where we can do whatever we want. And there are the two Airbnbs. And people, if they want to stay there, they can stay there. And otherwise, they can stay in another Airbnb or in a hotel or whatever they want to do. Or if they're locals, they just come and take um, the, the, the experience um, that we co-create. Um, so that just presented itself. Okay, let's do it. It is self-sustaining. Yes, people will pay for it. Of course, there needs to be income, um, but it's not like an expensive campus that basically doesn't get used half the time. Mm-hmm, for sure. Have you have you looked at university campuses lately and, and in theological schools? And I, I just recently I walked through just a few days ago. I walked through Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, which is very close to the venue. Uh, the Wes Theology venue that's likely coming up. And those rooms, I, I went into every single teaching room, there's nobody in there. And it was the afternoon, it was like 2.30 or so. And um, that's not unusual, there's nothing wrong, you know, I, this is not a, a negative comment about that seminary, that's just how it is. So why would we want that? Uh, so that's another thing, we turn it upside down, why would we fund expensive campuses that we A, don't need, and B, don't use much? Uh, that's another another example. Um, tying accreditation to teachers um, rather than to institutions uh, to m- make sure that teachers are on board with being co-creative rather than, you know, just standing there and doing the one-way traffic thing. That's another example of this. I mentioned the syllabus um, example earlier, but basically I want to be able to network people with providers, if you will, teachers, talented teachers who can ideally come to them. You know, the one or two coming to the many makes a lot more sense than the many coming to the few, especially if the few never change. (laughs) 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 They they provide the same old stuff decade after decade. Anyway, those are some examples. No, it's very cool. Um, I'm just kind of enamored with the whole process of, you know, having you as a teacher in a quote-unquote normal uh, seminary setting and then you go into the other one. But to, I'm just excited as someone who's even with podcasting and kind of how we came up with this podcast and how I want to do ministry is kind of like outside the box of what quote-unquote is normal. And I would say what you're doing with Warehouse Theology is quote-unquote outside the box of what you know people would say normal seminary or school of theology would be so kudos to you torsten for you know just having that passion and having that vision of of doing that um i i know it's it's i know it's just i don't know uh lifts my spirits knowing that people like you are out there doing that and i mean i want to try to you know i'll spread the word around as much as i can through the circles of people that i know um for that because i think being what you said uh, what really key to me is the co-creation because yes you want those teachers who are educated those teachers who can you know help you sharpen what you wanting to do but also not to just be like oh it's that professor up there that i can't talk to or i can't resonate with or i can't relate to but actually going into this together to be like how are we how can we both co-create this together to make it stronger is is a huge thing. So thank you so much for 
you know, taking on that kind of mantle of, of re reimagining in a way I like using that reimagining um, education. You know, I, uh, one of, one of the things I want to do shortly and I will absolutely do it is if there are people, and I have to focus on metro areas, um, mm. obviously I, I, you know, I mean, the, this country is massive. <laughs> um, so if somebody comes to me from uh, somebody from, I don't know, Austin, Texas, uh, or Seattle, Washington, or wherever in the country, you know, with an airport not too far away, um, I promise if they, if they want me to come, to talk about what warehouse theology can do for them in their context and to co-create an experience. Not to say, here's my lineup of, of professors, but, but to start with what's actually needed. Got to start with what's actually needed, right? Mm-hmm. Being contextual. Um, if somebody wants me to come out there, all they have to do is get in touch. We agree at time. And if they just take care of me from the moment I touch down at that airport, you know, I'll make my way there. Um, and I, I want to, that, that's kind of, that's the directionality that I envision physically taking theology or hermeneutics. Cause in my, in my book, and this is another out of the box thing, I suppose, hermeneutics is certainly prior to theology. Mm-hmm. There's no point doing theology if you don't have your hermeneutical wits about you. You know, you can you can be human without being theological. You cannot be human without being hermeneutical. Mm-hmm. I want to take that into context. I want to learn. I want to invite into that co-creative relationship. I want to see what people, what communities around the country need. And I will go there. If somebody, I forgot what cities I mentioned now, Austin, I think I mentioned, if it's just randomly, if somebody in Austin says, uh, hey, we got this, we got some house churches or whatever, and we're not sure we know what we're doing theologically or, or hermeneutically, or we can't even pronounce the word, or whatever, <laughs> um, can warehouse theology do stuff for us? Yes, absolutely. And if you want me to come, I'll make my way to Austin on my dime. You just take care of me for the time that I'm with you. Um, that's kind of what I'm envisioning in the, in the, in the near term, starting almost immediately. Wow. Um, I want to illustrate the reverse directionality of warehouse theology compared to the compound uh, <laughs> where everybody has to come here, and if they can't come here physically, they'll do it uh, online. And of course, online's great. I will do that too. There'll be a lot of details on that uh, shortly. I'll put some in those videos that I've started mm-hmm. to release, and, and then of course the website. Um, we're gonna have to start being close to wrapping up, just to be mindful of your time. Um, but um, by the time this this interview this episode will come out i'm sure you'll have launched um the warehouse theology site and all that so if you want to just maybe say to our listeners and the people who are going to download this where can they find um find more about warehouse theology more about your passion and vision these videos that kind of you know in a little snip is where they can find out about that so there are really two kinds of uh, online presence right now. On the one hand, there are, of course, you know, the social media. Um, and I really only just 
started with that for warehouse theology. So, you know, um, Facebook, Instagram, um, Twitter. So uh, that will ramp up um, more over the, the, the next couple of weeks. The website is the other one. The website is simply warehousetheology.com. There's no EDU there. It could not be EDU because it needs to be accredited in the way that we talked about earlier. And I'm not super interested in that anyway. And frankly, uh, it's a dot-com fit. I did not want Warehouse Theology to be uh, something at this early stage run by some, uh, by, by uh, you know, a committee or this or that parameter. It is not a non-profit. Uh, it's an LLC, actually. And um, it will be much, much cheaper by multiples than, you know, than what seminaries um, offer. And the details of that, and some people might only want to spend, you know, 50 bucks a month on theological education. Some people may want to spend 500 bucks on theological education. Uh, it is going to be credit-based. You buy credits. You just use your credit card, you buy credits, and every month you can either keep them the way you've allocated them to this or that thing that Warehouse Theology offers, or you can reallocate them if you mm. want. Uh, so it's super flexible. It's dirt cheap <laughs> compared to what seminaries do, and it is for anyone and everyone who's interested. So... Um, Pastors, absolutely. Remember, those guys get next to no professional development. They may also have next to no professional development budget. But if warehouse theology can make life seriously easier for them as pastors, and remember, they're in a very lonely position in what they're doing. Mm -hmm. You know, they have to perform, perform, perform. And everybody wants, 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 and very few people give, 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 and provide, provide, provide. It makes for a lonely uh, situation. If warehouse theology can help them and make their job considerably easier, that's what we're going to do. And we have, and we, we're doing that. Um, that's very much in, in our, in our makeup. And that's in that website, um, built into that website that is at the moment still password protected until launch. Um, if on the other hand, somebody is um, you know, uh, a, a nun or a done, if you will, you know, no church affiliation or used to be affiliated to a church, but I'm so done with mm -hmm. that. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome. For starters, you're in the majority anyway, but warehouse theology is totally for you. Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. On the one hand, I want us to support pastors to the very best of our, our ability. At the same time, we're super excited about the nuns and duns, too. Uh, then if you're a professional development person, if you're a nurse and you need to have a certain number of hours of professional development, Minnesota, for instance, regulates it, like every state, very closely, um, then um, we can provide professional development for you because you may be working in a hospital in super interculturally uh, difficult uh, situations, and we can provide professional development, let's say, a weekend to nurses. We can provide hermeneutics to lawyers. Did you know that lawyers in Minnesota and most states have to show that they keep up their interpretive skills because they have to interpret all these old texts? Hmm. Uh, 
you know, that they're going to use. And I've had many lawyers in my classes, and they basically said, why wasn't I taught this at law school? Well, Warehouse Theology wants to teach this cool. to those lawyers. So we have a whole range of people we want to attend to. That's kind of the point I'm trying to make. Awesome. Um, well, Torsten, thanks again for giving us this time and thank you um, for you be able to talk about warehouse theology. Um, I know I'll spread the word um, through my you know social medias and just other people that don't want that kind of normal um, seminary kind of you know way to do things, but doing this co-creation. So, and I'm sure our paths will cross. Um, you know, we're friends with some of the same people. And if you ever need us to help out with Warehouse Theology, just let us know because I know um, we would thank help you. out in any way. But thank you so much, Torsten, for your time. And um, congratulations. By the time, like I said, this will come out, you're, you're, it'll have launched. So, um, yeah, just keep us posted on how everything's going and um, hope to collaborate with you more in the future. I hope so. I'm sure we will. And thanks so much for your interest and for the invitation and for passing on on the word. So thanks for that. And yes, our paths will cross again. All right. (laughs) Have a good night, Torsten. You too. All All right. right. Thanks. Thanks for being part of our conversation. To continue the conversation, find us on social media at SacredMN. If you enjoyed this show, you might enjoy Revolution Church with me, Jay Baker. You know, I was thinking about leaving the ministry again. I wasn't sure what to do. And you were like, either come work with me or get a job somewhere or do that. You know what I mean? We were talking about that. And it's one of those things where it's like, it's so nice to have people in your life when you're questioning God. You don't know if you believe. You don't know where you're at. You feel like your life's falling apart. And they're saying, look at other avenues in ministry. Now, I had another friend of mine, a humanist friend of mine, telling me, you got to quit. You got to give up. You got to stop. And this was somebody I really, really respected, still respect. But they were like telling me to move on and do that. And then we had our conversation, and it was just the complete, you know, it was a complete flip side. It really impacted me in, in such an amazing way. And I wanted to just make sure I thanked you for that. Wow. You well, know. thank you for sharing that because that, that blesses me. So thank you.